the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I, this, these are all rhetorical questions. Because you know I told you, and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. It's just a no crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker. And a shot. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. I'm Chadwick Matlin, editor at 538. Far to my right, Kate Fagan. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. Kate's an ESPNW columnist, of course. And between us, shining like the stat man he is, Neil Payne, sports writer at 538. It's a lot to live up to, but mm-hmm. how's it going, Chad? Neil, I think you christened yourself stat man a few weeks ago. Stat man? Yeah, I, well, I at least busted out the cape, so I can't. I have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> So on the show today, we're going to talk about the case of Duti Chand, an Indian runner who challenged limits on testosterone levels for female runners. And to the surprise of seemingly nearly everyone, she won, um, lifting the ban. We'll talk about that. Then we'll move on to the 2024 Boston Olympics, um, which Boston citizens in 2015 have stopped from happening. And then we'll talk about Jurgen Klinsmann, the man that U.S. soccer fans like to think that they could do better than. <laughs> but first, Brady. So before we enter this studio... While Kate was under the hot lights of Around the Horn, Tom Brady's suspension was upheld by an arbitrator for the NFL, and he's going to miss the first four games. Do we have any insta-react? Insta, not a hot take, right? We We want to counter the hot take, but any instant reaction about the numbers about what this might mean? Well, uh, seeing as how he originally was slated to miss four games, it seems like we could just trot out what we had done before because nothing really changed. Uh, And before we had said that it seemed like it hurt the Patriots by like a win and a half or two wins, uh, I believe. And uh, I just called up some numbers. Over the season, that is. Yeah, over the season by missing the four games. And uh, just looking at like their playoff odds, uh, Numberfire had run the the stats on this earlier, and it was a 5% decrease to the Patriots playoff chances uh, without Brady playing those four games. So they would have been 11 and five. Now they might be 10 and six or or nine and seven and might miss the playoffs 5% more likely because. And Neil, didn't you, didn't you, or was it Ben Morris who wrote that the draft pick that the Patriots lost was actually the bigger deal than Brady here, that no matter what the suspension would have been that long-term, the draft picks that the Patriots lost because this was like the real, punishment that they got yeah since he's only uh gonna cost them like one and a half or two wins then uh the long-term value of the players that they could have drafted with the you know assortment of picks that they have to relinquish now and still have to relinquish under the terms of the current and ongoing suspension uh the we're going to be more valuable to the patriots anyway than than losing you know brady for these four games so nothing has changed and uh the patriots are still kind of starting the season at a disadvantage and potentially at an even bigger disadvantage long term it's going to be an odd look for the nfl in week five right when the cowboys play the patriots and greg hardy is back (laughs) after his four game suspension and brady's still out because they have a bye week, and so that will be his fourth game if it's upheld. I mean, that, the conversation that week is going to make the NFL 
make it clear how arbitrary a lot of these things no, are. No, their their offenses were equivalent, they're, so there's not going to be equivalent. any kind of uh, debate at all about that. We, that. Uh, the optics. Yeah. We're talking about more Brady during Significant Digits when Alice McCann will be here, so I'm going to, let's let's put a pin in that, guys. Mm-hmm. All right? We're used to historic moments happening in sports all the time, right? We, we relive them, we watch replays and replays, but we're most used to seeing them on the field, it seems to me, or the court or the ice or, or whatnot. Something, to me at least, happened earlier this week that could just as easily define the next few de- decades of international sports um, and international athletics when Duti Chan, an Indian sprinter, um, who has spent the last year appealing a decision that banned her from competing in track and field internationally um, because of her elevated but natural testosterone levels. Um, and so this week, the Court of Arbitration of Sport said that actually that ban was not Okay, that um, that there wasn't a scientific basis that elevated testosterone levels so improved her performance that she wasn't going to be that that she it wasn't fair for her to compete against other women, um, and so now she's going to be able to compete. And Im- importantly uh, to me and and Kate, you've written about this, so correct me if I'm wrong. If tracks governing body can furnish enough evidence that there is an advantage to having elevated natural testosterone levels in the next two years, mm-hmm. then these regulations will be back in place. Is that, does that read of it correctly? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, if the IAAF can somehow put together the science or find scientists or find the science to show a significant correlation between natural occurring testosterone and an advantage, and we're talking a greater advantage than any sort of genetic advantage, like height and Michael Phelps, long limbs, something like that, because nobody's disputing that testosterone or even having naturally high testosterone doesn't provide some sort of advantage. It just doesn't rise to the level of flagging and banning. And I think what's interesting is like this story is flying a little under the radar, I think, for the mainstream for lots of different reasons. But and it might be because nobody's really looking down the road at why this ruling will matter. But it matters because the IAAF and the IOC. IAAF is the track uh, track, authority. yeah. Yeah. Um, and the uh, Olympics, so the IOC, they worked in tandem to create the female hyperandrogenism policy. So if the Olympics, when they gather around a table in November to approve all of their regulations for Rio in 2016, they really can't uphold this sex testing regulation that they created in tandem. Then they would be liable to be because they've already seen how the highest court in the sports land has ruled on this. So they can't really, in good faith, and say, "Well, we're sticking with that policy." Now, then you go down the line. There are a lot of other international governing bodies that have looked toward the Olympics and the IAAF to set their standards. And in some ways, it's like FIFA and rugby and you know rowing and, and maybe swimming. I haven't taken a close look at their policy. So you're talking about a sweeping verdict here that would wipe out any sort of sex testing which is essentially what the what people who study it say the female hyperandrogenism policy is like although it's although they're doing well semantically it really is just a sex testing policy in the old form of sex testing policy when they did like a naked parade but dressed up within science you mean exactly so we spent a long time looking for takes for this segment Mm -hmm. and um, surprise! I was expecting really virulent ones, right? About mm-hmm. about um, about gender and sex and and what's fair and whether a woman was a man, whatever else. Weirdly, the conversation seemed to be restrained, and th- and this might be Kate the idea that's sort of under the radar, or sort of so different from mainstream conversations that we don't quite know Honestly, how to I take think about one, it. One, it's like the phrase "female hyperandrogenism." Like most people who are going to offer fo- hot takes are going to be stopped right there because they're like t- kind of baffled by what that means. And, th- right. and in essence, that's part of the policy. Plus, 
when I wrote a column about FIFA's sex testing, there was plenty of hot takes on Twitter about, you know, well, you can't let men play. You know, this is what it's about. It's about men dressing up as women to play, which was hot, you know, a very hot take since there's really very few episodes of that happening. So it's part of there's no direct news peg right now because we're not in the middle of the Olympics. And plus that that simple phrasing just scares a lot of people mm-hmm. away because they're like, I don't even know how to decode that. I don't really know what it means. So I don't know how many hot takes I can offer about it. So I want to get to, instead of a hot take, to, to read a quote that Chand herself said. And I thought it was really interesting for us to discuss it because to me, this is a story not about analytics, but about measurement, which to me feels pretty native to what we talk about a lot, which is how you evaluate somebody. In this case, the evaluation is in a fraught space about gender, which you know we, we can certainly discuss, and, and also um, perhaps invasion of privacy issues and, and others. So Chand herself said, um, quote, I'm very thankful to the judges uh, of, of the of the appeal committee that they have taken a close look at my case and given the decision decision in my favor. I have got justice. I am a normal girl, and that last bit's really interesting interesting to me because mm-hmm. this idea of normalcy and whether normalcy can be measured is a really fraught thing, and we're seeing this across society now. When we when we you know there's a there's a large conversation going around uh, going on around transgender um, issues in broader society, and this idea of normalcy we used to define to me normalcy based on um, a little bit based on science. And now spectrum, I feel like, is just a word that's used about all sorts of what we uh, of things that we once thought were, were binaries. Yeah. Well, the difficult part about that is like the the court, the sport court has basically ruled that there's just no scientific measurement that they think is valid to determine sex. But what you just saw Duty say was that certainly there is societally wise, right? I mean, she truly experience what it's like when you're not adhering to one of the extremes of gender as as we play out in society if you're not identifying and performing gender in the way we want and then if scientifically you're challenged as to your sex two different things gender and sex the kind of shame and embarrassment that our society causes when when someone seems outside of the normal bounds of gender, normal bounds of gender and sex. But what's interesting to me is that this, like in uh, men's sports, we often acclaim being abnormal in like such a positive direction. He's a freak. Right, exactly. How often do we throw that term around and it seems to kind of connote extra, you know, superhuman uh, athletic ability? And uh, there's, you know, in women's sports, it really is like kind of a fraught issue where you don't want to be too, you know, you don't want to be abnormal, but but, but the nature of excellence in sports is to be abnormal in a lot of ways. And uh, one of my questions about this uh, that I had for you, Kate, was like uh, when they're testing these, uh, we talk about normal, like natural occurring testosterone levels, which I think is kind of an interesting distinction to make uh, when we look at like the other policies toward like steroids mm-hmm. and things like that, is that those are abnormally occurring. They're not naturally occurring. But is there a way to separate that where they can say, okay, well, you, we've tested you at this level of testosterone, but it naturally occurred in your body, but we've tested someone else where it's the result of some kind of performance enhancing drug. And so we can make that distinction. Or is the problem here that they can't actually make that distinction well and that's that's part of the issue is that because of international sport and what we've seen over the last 10 years in cycling and running is that you're making a lot of journalists and and, and everyday people who are watching are making the connection that well maybe she's doping you mm-hmm. know like the, and then passing it off as naturally occurring testosterone and maybe that's what's really happening here behind closed doors that we don't know about that's not really the case i mean in all of the bioethicists that i've spoken with 
there are certain measurements where you know that it's naturally occurring testosterone and it's not synthetic doping. And, mm-hmm. and it's important to know because a lot of people will justify having this policy by saying, well, men are tested for doping and testosterone as well. But the difference there is that, yes, men are tested for testosterone, but as soon as scientifically it's proven that it's naturally occurring, they're they're free to go. And it doesn't matter how high their testosterone is. They could have triple the average man and again i don't even know what these numbers mean because they're so arbitrary of course but and that's totally fine that would be seen actually as kind of like what you said it would make them a freak in in a in positive an, yeah, way you'd be like he's a man's man he's the strongest he's all these things and he could have triple the advantage over the average male athlete in testosterone levels now when a woman once it's found out to be not synthetic doping and it's naturally occurring then as soon as she hits whatever boundary the different organization has set then she's banned. Which is totally That's arbitrary. Totally. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're trying to pinpoint a level that, you know, certainly athletes, even female athletes, are mm-hmm. going to have higher levels. A lot of times will have higher levels of testosterone than, like, the population because they're, you know, stronger and lifting. And there's a certain mm-hmm. measurements. But whatever line they've set, like, you couldn't really name as, like, should be pinpointed the line. It's totally arbitrary. So the double standard to me is working in all sorts of different ways here. And one of the interesting ones is that, it, it, and this gets to the, to the freak idea, which is, or, which is or the freak in the, in the male sense, which is that we are trying, in men's sports, we expect the men to pursue excellence and iterate and get better and better. But if you're trying to limit women based on testosterone, then you're asking women's sports not to try and get better and be- not to try and exceed, um, achieve more and more and more. And in David Epstein's book, The Sports Gene, which is like this this hallmark mm-hmm. book for, for sports science, um, he wrote about a 2012 study that spent three months following female athletes um, from a range of sports, including track and field. And he showed that elite, and the study showed that elite level competitors had testosterone levels that consistently remained more than twice as high as though, as those of non elites. And so, great women athletes are going to have higher testosterone levels. And so, if we want great female athletes, then this is going to be part of the conversation. It's a total double bind because I, I wrote about this with Brittany Griner um, right bef- when she left Baylor before the WNBA. It's like, doesn't she technically embody everything we say we're missing in women's sports? I mean, when Shaq came onto the scene, he was labeled like a freak in an awesome way. And he could, you know, he could dunk and he was powerful down low. And then you saw Brittany Griner coming along and she was dunking and she was challenging the boundaries and bringing the game along in the way that everybody says it's supposedly lacking compared to the men's game. And then, but once she started pushing those boundaries, it was like, oh, like she's too much, quote unquote, like a man. And it's like, quote unquote, you know, not fun to watch. And it's not, you know, beautiful. And so then you got women's sports in a bind where they can never evolve to the athleticism you want because they're trying to pursue traditional notions of femininity as well. We saw that with Serena Williams the other week. I don't think we ever talked about that. Mm -hmm. There was a New York Times article that wrote about Serena Williams maybe not being as dominant, was it, because she had a male physique or something like that? No, that, that other players on the tour didn't want to pursue the kind of strength training and the physique that that Serena possessed because they you know what it broke what it, when you broke down broke it down it was that they cared more about embodying traditional notions mm. of femininity than they did about winning honestly like that was the core point oh, so the of critique the article. was about the now, other players more than about Serena's I mean physique. the article so, itself yeah. probably was lacking as enough critique in general but that seemed to be the takeaway about such a high pro- profile sport like women's tennis where you'd think the money and everything they would just they would want their bodies to be however they needed to be to win 
Right, and that's such an ugly kind of stereotypical notion that comes up every time Serena Williams wins at all, especially in like dominant fashion. Is oh, she, you know, the trolls on Twitter come out and say she looks like a man. It's too much, you know, too masculine. Uh, and it really is such an interesting and and tough thing to look at because we went back and we looked at track and field times and you know swimming times between men and women, and there really is that gap between the two that hasn't really been. Closed, and um, somebody had written at the Atlantic about this golden ratio, where the best men's times are usually about ninety percent of the best women's times, like the world record. So we have this sense that women are, you know, naturally going to be lagging behind athletically than men. But like you guys had said, it really feels like we're enforcing that at this point, where it's going well, we from would be enforcing being even more than that, right? That right. If, you're, if you take away the top tier in, in track, let's say, and there was a, there was a stat I saw. On WBRs, it's only a game that seven out of a thousand elite female track athletes have hyperandrogenism, mm-hmm. and so there's you know a number out there. When you have, when you're at the Olympics, you're you're pulling from the, the top of the top. So um, so if you are enforced, if you're cutting off those top elites, then that ninety percent would be the ninety percent uh, of the men's times would be eighty five percent or eighty percent because you're taking away the people who can most. Get close, to them, right? Yeah, perhaps. and we're almost using that gap as a, as an excuse to justify instead of marveling at performances which occur naturally that might close that gap. Instead, we're saying no, this is the ceiling. You have to stay, you know, under that, and that's the way it's always going to be. You have no control of staying under it. And then you've got, you know, as you mentioned, the the that top layer and possibly women who have been flagged for some of this testing and then put through this obstacle course publicly a lot of times. That's sending a pretty significant signal, not just to other female athletes, but to younger female athletes about what it what it means to actually maintain that balance between being a woman and being a competitive athlete, which limits the the ascension of female athletes in the progression. And, and, and also it's like we separate men and women from like boys and girls from like age five on the soccer field. So then we're then we're shocked as they grow up and you see like more of a division between performance. I'm not going to sit here and say there's no difference physically between men and women, but it's certainly exacerbated by the way we send them on different paths like before they can barely even kick a soccer ball. If you take that sport for example, like if they were playing together until they were 18, the division over time would probably be a, it would shrink. And one of the more jarring things about all the coverage that I've read is so there are there are operations that you can do to to lower the level of your testosterone, but then some women are getting uh, cosmetic surgery to appear more like women on their genitals or otherwise, which has nothing to do with their levels of testosterone. And so that's only re-reinforcing, I suppose, this gender split um, that, that otherwise wouldn't need to happen because of this larger pressure that's going on. Uh, yeah, around. it's like gender policing yeah. more than mm-hmm. anything about your presentation and what it means to be a woman. And if you are violating those then you're flagged for this testing a lot of times. So, Kate, before we move on, so what's the next step? Is Chan now, she's going to compete and free compete and, and we'll hear about it in two years or, or it'll just disappear well, and mean, this will be the new normal? You know, I don't know. I haven't compared like her times and where she would be in terms of competing and being a presence at the Olympics, but she's certainly an Olympic hopeful for India, which I don't know how that measures when we talk about like actually her being a front runner or a competitor once she got to Brazil, but she's now from day from yesterday eligible to compete and get back on track to qualifying for Brazil. And so it certainly should be a story over the next year leading into Rio you know, even if she's not competing for the gold medal, she'll be in some of those heats if she does make that team. And then we can continue the conversation about what this means and what it means for women's sports and sports in general going forward. 
Okay, for those of you watching the video on 538.com, thanks for watching. And for those listening to the podcast, here's a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is SeatGeek, the smartest way for fans to save money on sports tickets. You know the drill by now. SeatGeek aggregates tickets for all sorts of sports and music events and grades them all by their deal score, a fancy algorithm that tells you whether a ticket is cheap compared to past presents for the event, where the market's headed, etc. You've heard me say this for months. You've been going to random sporting events because of this for months, so I'm going to spare you a new random sporting event. For those of you who haven't been to a random sporting event because of this ad, there is still time. When you make your first purchase on SeatGeek, be sure to use our promo code TAKEDOWN to get a $20 rebate. SeatGeek is your ticket to sports this summer. This week, Boston decided that with all those World Series rings, it didn't need any Olympic-sized ones. After months of debate and grousing, Boston removed its bid to host the 2024 Olympics. The mayor, Marty Walsh, said that he couldn't let the city cover cost overruns. I refuse to mortgage the future of the city away. I refuse to put Boston on the hook for overruns. And I refuse to commit to signing a guarantee that uses taxpayers' dollars to pay for the Olympics. So maybe it's where I'm sitting, which is as an editor of 538, where like technocrats rule the world. But it seems to me like everyone has woken up to the idea that the Olympics and the World Cup are an awful deal for countries all at once. That in the last 10 years... We have seen the conversation around, since New York tried to get, I think, the 2012 Olympics and they wanted to build that stadium uh, on the West Side Highway or whatever that was, Mm -hmm. that the Jets were going to play in afterwards too, right? That like everyone realizes that giving prime real estate, so sorry, for developed countries, giving prime real estate um, is a bad idea because you're only going to use it however many times a year and you could get much more value otherwise. And for developing countries, that giving... Uh, that much infrastructural investment to one thing that maybe isn't optimized for later use mm. is also a bad deal. I- am I making this up? This is a, a broader cultural thing. I have a tendency of doing that. Making up the the tendency the toward people being more skeptical yeah. of the Olympics. And we'll get to the polling around it in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sort of simple economics. Uh, and there have been like a lot of sports economists that have beaten this drum for many years that, you know, despite all the promises that are made by the PR firms that are hired by, uh, you know, people on the committee to bring the Olympics to, uh, you know, your city, that it doesn't really generate anything positive economically, or at least not to offset the, the investment costs uh, when you host one of these mega events. And that goes for the World Cup, too. And there's got the, it, there's got to be a sweet spot, though. You know, it, it's like Boston, certainly, or New York, when you're having to add a, a stadium specifically for an event, but that had post-use. But I understand that there are certain spots where it, it doesn't work. And then you look at, like, South Africa going down to – I covered the 2010 uh, World Cup. And then you look at how brutal of a deal that was for South Africa. But we, there's got to be a sweet spot here for, like, what country and at what place and what city that has certain infrastructure but not others. Like – where is that sweet spot? So this economist, Andrew Zimbalist, wrote a book called Circus Maximus that I was reading on the way in uh, today uh, to work. And his contention, which I think is a pretty compelling one, is that the, where the sweet spot used to be is a totally different place now, uh, now, which is to say that because security costs are so much higher and because the television um, uh, profit structure is different than it used to be with, with the way that television profits are shared with the IOC versus the host country versus the broadcast networks and whatever else, that it's such a narrow ability to actually turn a profit that it's uh, almost no one can. 
And even when you factor in the long-term effects around tourism, he writes, that there's just no way to turn it. And, and it, it's almost through a sort of stubborn, stubborn emotional attachment mm-hmm. to these big games that we, that we, you know, everyone wants to watch them. There's sort of a new not-in-my-backyard situation going on with the Olympics. And, and, um, and it's, a, it's hard to try and stomach actually having them in your own town. So, so the data shows that, that maybe there is no sweet spot. For hosting, that's this based on my level, reading of Zimbalist economic of uh, work. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of makes sense because if you think about it, like a lot of the people that want the Olympics to be brought to a town would be private economic interests, like construction companies and the hoteliers and people that are, you know, going to benefit from the building of these things uh, using, you know, they're they're ostensibly public. Uh, uh, facilities, but in fact, they're actually kind of private interests are going to be able to make the money off of it. And people have really wised up to that, uh, even in in the course of building, you know, major league stadiums and things like that. It's kind of the similar idea where in the past you could get public funds to finance your stadium and then make money off of it yourself as an owner. But I think people are a lot more savvy about that now. One report I saw said that in South Africa for the World Cup, the construction companies made 10 times the profit during the years of the construction for World Cup stadiums than they did previous to that. And so there's a real private interest that, that's happening uh, around this. And, and so one of the questions I have always had, and I think I sort of know the answer, but I want to talk, about, talk through with you guys, is whether – so it's really hard to get infrastructure spending happening in, in this country and, and, and also other countries. And this is one way that it happens, right? New light rails get built from the airport to downtown in, in Cape Town or Joburg or whatever. Um, or, um, or you'll have some type of improvement to, um, to commerce or, 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 or the infrastructure around people being able to spend money and helping economy and whatnot. And so if you aren't able to green light that kind of infrastructure spending otherwise because there isn't this alignment of politics and corporate interests then is it worth doing it in this way despite the cost overrun do you know what, does that right make sense? no it makes sense because i mean you go to seattle now and it's not the same thing as an olympics but right it, it was a world's fair that that brought them their iconic you know space needle and, or you go to indy and now they have a, a slew of hotels and some higher end hotels that they didn't have before because they have hosted super bowls and so you know, I can totally buy into the fact that, like, overall, you could say that that was not a win-win. But there are certain things that are coming out of these events. And now I'm equating, like, Olympics with Super Bowls with World's Fairs back in the day with the World Cup that are not going to happen. And certain cities have certainly benefited in areas from them. So how do we go about highlighting what the clear benefits are and maximize those and change whatever the algorithm is that produces the end result right now that seems so disastrous for these countries? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and maybe the the lacking of these economic studies is that, you know, they don't they, – they strictly look at it in the dollars and cents of what's happening right now or just in the short term. And, and there's may not be a way to account for the benefits of something decades down the road or the – if it sets off some kind of, you know, domino effect where it, it improves an area that wouldn't have been improved otherwise and then it, it helps, you know, expand out from there. 
But uh, the fact that we're having to turn to some of these more, you know, long range and maybe even convoluted uh, thinking, yeah, yeah, uh, justifications sort of plays into the overall point of, you know, you have to be looking for silver linings in these things because they're not easy to find. And uh, another reason why is just if you think about the competition to host one of these events involves outspending the other cities that would bid for them. And you have to kind of outdo them with infrastructure. You have to outdo them on the bid. And uh, there's something in economics called the winner's curse, which shows that if you're uh, you and a bunch of other people are bidding on an item of unknown value, the person that wins the bid is by definition going to be the person that overpaid the most for that item. And uh, it usually uh, ends with someone, you know, whoever gets it being like, oh, now I kind of have uh, buyer's remorse over what I just bid for because uh, it wasn't worth it. they don't have to pay for it. The, the citizens do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like over the years we've done a masterful PR job in selling, not we, but whatever, society um, at, for hosting these parties as if there's some sort of value in it and specifically financial value. But I mean, if you just bring it down to a micro level, everybody knows hosting a party costs something. Right. I mean, <laughs> maybe point. if we just start looking at it like that, like, hey, guess what? We know this is going to cost us a little bit, but here in New York, we want the 20, you know, 42 Olympic Games because we want to throw a big, awesome party. Um, and nobody's going to use those terms, but maybe we need to start looking at it like, do you want it? Do you see a cultural value for your city in that moment? And, and what's stop? that value appraised right. at? Of course, we're going to try and name and put a figure to that value, but maybe we need to stop thinking of it as like a clear outcome where some, somehow your city has got like a, a high financial kickback for it. So what's interesting as well, and this gets back to the not in my backyard sort of uh, nature of this, is that in in America, people say they want the Olympics to be in America. It's something like 90% of Americans think, I'd love for the Olympics to be in America. Right. That sounds great. That sounds fun. Maybe I'll you know fly over to, to San Francisco and, and see a, a, a crew race or something. But when you ask them whether they want it to take place in their local area, the approval falls to 61%. <laughs> Unless you have an Airbnb place. And then, then you yeah, then you're, then you're like, yeah, yeah, I yeah, want right. it. Um, and, and we've seen this a little bit in other countries, too. The number of applicants to host the Olympics, especially the Winter Olympics, which is a, which is a more of an infrastructural challenge as well as fewer people watch it on TV so that the revenues are different. Um, it's down to three in this last round. Um, and actually, Oslo dropped out. Um, and so that makes, that makes it between two. Um, that was to host the, the 2022 Olympics. Uh, and wow. so... Like the larger political structures seem to be wising up to this, and and that suggests a, a reigning of um, economists and technocrats as the guiding philosophy to, to a lot of politics. I think. And I don't know if, and if you're looking way down the road, right? Like, there's a lot of Olympic sports that you know necessitate facilities that just genuinely will never be used again, like a kayak course or something. And now. I feel like all kayakers are going to be angry, but you know, at me for suggesting that there are certain elements of the Olympics that that create infrastructure that you're definitely not going to use again, and, and they are a one-off. So, do the Olympics become a a space where you do pare it down to you know the twelve core events in a city that that are manageable for way more cities and don't cause all of this infrastructure to have to be built? Yeah, maybe that is representing an efficiency of the market where only the cities that are most well 
well-suited infrastructurally to host these events are the ones putting in for it. And uh, it's just naturally going to be, you know, the range of cities that can host it is going to be shrunk. Okay, so we'll have to wait to see who hosts the Olympics in 2024. Uh, that is not Boston. The U.S. Olympic Committee is thinking about maybe asking L.A. if uh, they, they would take up the They love the throwing flag. big parties. Yeah, so exactly. Maybe. You know, one hot takedown covers the, the, the 2024 Olympics. We'll, we'll play this tape. Well, we'll hear what we said then. Heck yeah. All right, now let's talk about soccer, the U.S. men's national team. And, of course, we cannot talk about soccer without Allison McCann, our soccer spirit animal. Allison, welcome back to the program. <laughs> soccer spirit animal, I like that. What animal would you be if you were a soccer spirit animal? Oh, you are a soccer spirit animal. Is that so a we're just I know, but like what animal? Or you think spirit animals I'm are their tiger. own animal? I'm you're a, a tiger. tiger. Yeah, I could see you. T- you're wearing black and orange right now, but yeah. you're a tiger, yeah. Coincidence, but I'm a tiger. I don't know. Neil, Neil, you have a bit of a bear-like countenance. <laughs> Allison, I'm not sure. All right, I guess we should talk about Jurgen Klinsmann. But What's first, his spirit animal? Oh, man. A gazelle. Yeah, he's but a German gazelle. A German gazelle. Are there German gazelles? There sure. must be. Why are, we just, Paleolithic. are we avoiding talking about the U.S. men's national team? Is that what we're doing there right may now? Be a this reason. bad. Yeah, <laughs> that this bad. bad. Speaking of, here's my little intro. But being a soccer fan of the U.S. men's, men's national team is to be in an existential crisis at nearly all times. The latest moment of panic, the U.S.'s flameout at the Gold Cup, where it was beat by Jamaica and Panama to finish fourth in a tournament it likely should have won, according to the... Um, pre-tournament odds that I saw. And now people like Goal.com writer Ivis Halarsip are calling for Klinsman's head. While there's plenty of blame to go around, you could point to several players who just didn't play well enough. The blame has to start with Jurgen Klinsman, who chose the starting lineup and made the substitutions, and on both counts, he was left disappointed. So what's next? The U.S. has to regroup, get ready for a Confederations Cup play-in match in October, and they really need to win that match to salvage this year and also to help Jurgen Klinsman save some face. The blame starts with Klinsman, but where does it end, guys? How far does, does this does go end? down? <laughs> so, Neil and Allison, what do we know about the Gold Cup performance? Do we have some numbers about whether it was Klinsman's fault or the players' fault? How are we supposed to make sense of this? It seems like it was everybody's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get that out there. But, I mean, it was definitely bad. This is, you know, arguably one of the worst losses for the U.S. men's national team ever. Um, people have been making the case for that. This is the first time uh, the U.S. has lost to a Caribbean nation uh, in the U.S. since, like, the 60s. It was the first time the U.S. has been eliminated from the Gold Cup by a CONCACAF team that, other than Mexico. Um, and it's the first time the U.S. has failed to advance uh, to the final since 2003. So, you know, it, it was disappointing uh, is an understatement, I think. And uh, I think a lot of people are, are, are right to wonder what's going on with um, Jurgen and this system that we've all been waiting to see, you know, how it does. And, it, and it's been four years now. And I think people are starting to get uh, a little impatient and we're not seeing the benefits of, of his style. Yeah, what I thought was interesting was that statistically they played some form of uh, the system that, you know, we know Klinsman uh, emphasizes possession and that he, uh, you know, kind of has an affinity for some of the more, you know, new wave styles of playing the game. And that involves, you know, not playing the long ball. That involves not doing as many crosses and and making shorter passes and kind of working your way down the field. Uh, And if you look at the numbers from the tournament, they – 
played like that basically. They were uh, they had the lowest percentage of long balls. They had the shortest average pass distance. Uh, they they generated a lot of goals off of their assists. You know, they had precise passing and the shortest average shot distance. So uh, on paper, some of these things should have added up to a good performance. Uh, and and you can question whether he forced the wrong style on the players that they had. Whether the players just didn't execute his plan is probably a combination of all of those things um but it shows that you know oftentimes especially in soccer i feel like they uh they talk about the system and if only you play within the system then everything will be great but they kind of did play within the system and things were not great i wasn't quite as panicky as i heard a lot of other people and i'd be interested to to hear allison and, and both of um chad and neil your take I, I guess i wasn't as panicky one because they have that playing game to the um Confederations, Confederations Cup. Cup. And so I would certainly think it was a complete loss if they were not going to be playing in that in a tune-up then for the World Cup. That's a huge deal. But they have that playing game. Um, and also, like, this is Klinsman's deal. And his kind of internal compass that he has with these young players and with starting lineups and with the whole talent he picks, he's often doing things that surprise people and usually leaning toward younger players – I don't think he's lost that touch with the pool of players. I think certainly he put people in incorrect positions at various times in this tournament, but I think that's a slight correction. I mean, considering the way we had seen them play, be playing, which was better than we'd ever seen, so, how can they all of a sudden now be calling for Klinsman's head? That's what I was confused about. They beat Holland. They beat Germany in Europe. What, what possibly could happen between those matches and, and the Gold Cup? I don't understand that. I think friendlies are different than international competition, like as non-statistical as it is to say, you know, mindsets, um, players that were there. And that's not to say that those wins aren't good, but now we're in the Gold Cup and now it's competition. And these games matter. These matter for FIFA rankings. And that's when we're performing poorly. So um, I don't know. It, it is really surprising. And uh, I, I would agree with you, Kate. I, you know, I usually am on Team Jurgen and... Uh, having a little bit more faith in giving this guy room to, you know, I, th- I think what's really incredible is he's not only obviously the head coach, but he's also now the technical director of uh, U.S. Soccer. So he's people, a lot of people have been saying, well, maybe he should just be doing one or the other and not trying to do basically two huge things, which is like be a good coach and be winning, but also be like changing the style of American soccer. Like those are obviously huge tasks. But um, and I to your point about, you know, sort of younger players and development and those things. Uh, this Gold Cup for me was really surprising in that we were sort of leaning on a 32-year-old Clint Dempsey to be our only finisher. We're playing, um, you know, Bradley for 90 minutes, you know, these guys that are, like, going into their 30s and maybe have one more World Cup. Um, and, and that was surprising to me that I'm not seeing those, you know, 20, 20 21-year-olds that uh, that did play in the Holland game. The Stanford student, who I'm blanking on his name, which is horrible, uh, that scored in those games. And, like, I, I wanted to see those players and how they're developing, and, and we didn't. We saw. And that's on Klinsman. I mean, the players didn't play well, but maybe it's on Klinsman about, and this we talk about all the time, about whether it's the coach or the players. And we heard this in the take. It is up to the coach in soccer in particular to set the lineup and decide who the substitutions are. And in this instance, maybe it's Clinton's fault for not putting the right players in. But I think there's also something to be said about soccer. Just, uh, you know, 
even after everything that happened in this tournament, and certainly they didn't play well, uh, if you dig down further into the numbers, they, they didn't play well in terms of possession or in terms of you know shot differential, but in the end, they still only lost once, and it was one, by one goal. Uh, and I often wonder, you know, all the time in soccer, the, we have these referendums on these coaches that seem to come down to like one or two games, and and we use those to, and it's and it's almost invariably like a one goal game that happens. Uh, and how much of that is just luck in, in a lot of ways? Like we wouldn't judge a manager in baseball on, you know, I mean. Sometimes we do, but but most of the time I think cooler heads prevail, and and we look at like hundreds of games to evaluate them on. But in soccer, we have so few matches to kind of make these determinations on that we we have to have everything be life or death, and and we use a loss by one goal to uh, you know be a referendum on on seven years worth of uh, work by someone. But isn't it the case that some sports you can make? better evaluations on a smaller sample than you can in other sports. So baseball, there's a lot of variance in each game, the different pitcher, whatever else. But football is 16 games, and it seems like I have a pretty good sense at the end of the season for how good a team is, even though they've only played 16 times. So could it be that soccer, you know, national teams we, we see for very small stretches of time, but can I not draw something from that? Yeah, you could probably draw something. I mean, it's probably not as much as you can draw from football. Maybe uh, more than you could draw from like a like a baseball one baseball game. Maybe it's more similar to hockey. But there's been research that shows that the outcome of any given soccer game is about half skill and half luck. And I think also Klinsman has often made the right calls, and he's clearly does interesting things with the lineup and he played a really young defense and then yeah he did he leaned on Dempsey and then Bradley so you're like wait are you going young or are you not going young but really if it as I mentioned earlier he has many times tweaked things to a way that it really has turned out well for the U.S. so it's hard to now when he's still he's not behaving any differently he just tweaked things the wrong way this time and this is the first sort of really poor outcome but you have to look back lean back on like a a, a well-performed World Cup in, in 2014, I think we all would say, was like generally speaking a success. So if you just if you look back on his history, like it seems like he's most of the time calibrated correctly in his lineups. And I would expect that more often than what I would expect would happen in the Gold Cup. Seems like a discussion of process versus outcomes, right? Like when he has good outcomes, then he is doing great. When he has bad ones, he, he's not doing as well. And we can't really seem to pinpoint as well, like how is this process doing? Uh, and maybe we don't know for many years now. So usually this is the time when we say we're going to bring in Allison McCann. We're going to go retrieve her from the, from the office. But you're already sitting here, Allison. Welcome as, as, as ever to your Significant Digits segment. Allison, what telling number have you brought us from the world of sports this week? All right, totally switching gears from soccer. Uh, this week's Significant Digit is 80, uh, or roughly 80, I should say, which is uh, the number of text messages that Tom Brady sent and received each day uh, in the four-month period between November and March. Each day? Each day. So it was yeah, roughly Tom. about 10,000 texts in total uh, on the phone that he then tried to have his assistant destroy. And, you know, normally nothing about deflate gate is interesting to me, <laughs> but here I am with, I'm just like blown away. To put this a little bit in context, you know, uh, teenagers send and receive about 120 texts per day. So he's not quite on teen levels, but for his age group of 35 to 44 year olds, 
they send and receive about 50 texts a day. So he's way above that. But think about his contacts list. I mean, he's got to just have everybody on that list. Do you think he the... saves them, though? I, I, I bet. True, they're all just random yeah, numbers. Yeah, random numbers. <laughs> like, oh, thanks, man. Did it for but you. But, like, after a game, he must just have, like, 180 texts where it, where it's like, hey, nice nice job. And he's like, cool, man, cool, man. But cool. this was in the Copy and paste, right? copy and paste. <laughs> no, he probably has, like, secret phone numbers. <laughs> He's also a dad. Like, he's still lame. And why is he texting? He's still lame. You know? Like, he should just be texting Giselle, and that's it. You know? That's what it. is he sending? 80 texts a day. So, clearly, he was firing off some sketchy stuff. I think stuff. that's an impossible standard that you're holding him to. <laughs> no one should be asked to just text their partner, and only their partner, no matter how famous or handsome they are. I think no, that's, I'm not, that's not I'm not right. asking him to. I'm just saying, like, once you get to Who dad you levels, texting, you're Tom? like... Yeah. I mean, I probably text more than that. Honestly. More than 80 a day. I would definitely say more than 80 a day. I mean, we're including iMessage, right? This could be a crowdsource hot take. iMessage and, and text are the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll I mean, give you like a weekend. Even think about, my, NFL, even think about my, my girlfriend. I sent her like 20 to 30, you know, like one or two an hour. Two an hour. Just like, hey, what's up? Or like a smiley emoticon. I mean, totally. And sometimes what should be one text ends up being four because you're like, hey, Oh wait, and then you know you fi- you mess something up, so you put an asterisk and you fix your spelling if you care about grammar the way I do. So definitely more than eighty. Okay, I'd be scared to know. So if any hot takedown listeners have received one of Tom Brady's eighty text messages a day, <laughs> please get in touch with us. Contact at five thirty eight dot com. Text us. Text us. Yes. Uh, who's going to give out their phone Chad's number? Cell phone number. <laughs> I already text a lot, so here it is. Yeah. Uh, or tweet at us through your text messaging device. Whatever works. We're eager to hear what Tom texted you. Allison, thanks as ever for bringing us the numbers from the frontier of Tom Brady's text messaging life. <laughs> thanks for having me. So that'll do it for this week's show. Kate Fagan, thanks for coming through. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne, thanks for being there. Thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Jody Avergan, who has his own podcast that all of you should be listening and to. And it's if really you don't. good. It's called What's the Point? You can mm-hmm. find it on iTunes and all of your podcasting apps and devices. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Our intern is Asa Chaturvedi. Uh, We get production help from Jordan Shulkin. Once again, thanks to SeatGeek for sponsoring the show. Remember to use the promo code TAKEDOWN when buying buying tickets on the SeatGeek app. Also when buying seats on the TicketGeek app. Um, You can email us at contact at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. And as I mentioned earlier, what your text messages say. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. We're on iTunes, of course. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Leave a message while you're there, maybe in a review or a rating even. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chad Matlin. Talk to you next time. Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio.